Good things are worth the wait. Thank you for waiting patiently for the second half of this interview with Dr. Mark Goulston. Your wait is over. We're back to it right now. Friends and family, I hope you enjoyed our special two-part solo cast focused on the war in the Middle East and its impact back here in the United States, particularly focusing on my engagement with the Jewish community and the realm of higher education here in the United States. What's great is that we pick back up with Dr. Goulston on that same subject, as I seek his advice in working through the difficult discussions and engagement I am having in these competing areas of my life. And I want to again, shift gears a little bit now, because there's something we've started doing on datages with some of our guests who are authors and thought leaders or experts on particular subjects. And we like to call it host help. You've already helped me a lot listening to your book and in sharing time with you here. But I want to kick it up a notch because this is kind of along the lines of self-help. But as the host of Datages, I share things that I face in my life. I get expert advice from people like you. And I hope that that can be a framework for other people in the Datages, friends and family to see that wisdom applied practically to real life situations. We've talked a little bit now earlier on in in this interview about the conflicts going on in our world right now. I want to share with you some of the things that I'm contending with at an individual level related to this and get your input and guidance. And I want to make sure that you're game for that. Let's do it. Great. Well, let's get into it. So big picture through your book and through your life's work, you talk a lot about using listening as a tool to address really challenging situations and trying to find common ground. But one of the things that I see in today's society, and you mentioned this earlier about these leaders, these authoritarians and how they're wielding power over people, what I see is an increasing polarization and a decline in the direct interpersonal interaction and a trend away from the notion of compromise. And I worry about the death of centrism altogether and common ground at the hands of extremism. I'm wondering when I say these things, if you agree with these observations, if you think I'm exaggerating based upon your life's experience, and do you believe that the principles that you've developed and that you've skillfully deployed in your own work and your life can continue to be effective as we go forward in this new world uh, that I've described? I'm an optimist by nature, but I I'm seeing increasing polarization. I'm seeing increasing divisiveness. And I think part of it is that anger and violence is addictive for a couple reasons. Anger, angry words, is a way of venting, getting something off your chest. And it's addictive. And when you have people who fuel it, you're going to get addicted to them because they give you more to get off your chest. And then when it escalates, using some of the formula we talked about early, escalate to violence. I think what happens is it gives you an outlet for things that normally you suppressed, acted out on by drinking, eating, maybe domestic violence, and you're taking it to the streets. And then I think also what happens is there's a kind of oxytocin bonding to the herd. Well, there's a combination of the excitement of the adrenaline rush. Oh, this is, this is, so powerful, but you're also part of a community. So uh, it's not the same oxytocin of intimacy that we're talking about, but there is a bonding. In fact, 
you know, one of the ways ISIS would recruit Americans is they they would drill down into these Americans who felt isolated, not connected to anyone, loners. Prey on, they prey would, on the isolation to bring them they, into their own herd. Oh, yeah. Come join us. And not only that, we're going to find you uh, women. And many of the people, Americans who joined ISIS, were not particularly successful with women in America. And so I think the combination of that connection away from the isolation, as well as giving people the opportunity to vent things, you know, makes it really something difficult to contend with. I'll share an anecdote that uh, I am one of the founding experts at the Newsweek Expert Forum. I contribute articles. And if you look up Newsweek Expert Forum, I think I have about 30 articles. And they're all different because I'm trying to share as much as I know. And there was one, I think, look up vaccine or something in the title. And it was a not a real conversation. It was a fantasy conversation between a pro-vaxxer and an anti-vaxxer. So I'll, I'll share it with you. And then I'd like you to break it apart and see if it has relevance. So in the, uh, uh, the fantasy conversation, the pro-vaxxer says to the anti-vaxxer, how come you're not getting vaccinated? I don't know that it helps. Well, you know, the science says that it does, you know, and we're in a pandemic, we're in an epidemic, so many people are dying. Why aren't you doing it? Well, I'm not sure I trust science. It wasn't one of my top subjects when I was in high school. <laughs> and then what happens is the pro vaxxer says, yeah, but what's really going on? And then the conversation goes deeper. And the anti-vaxxer says, people like you have always treated me like I'm just some dumb redneck. People like you have been talking down to me all my life. And I'm not a moron. I'm not an idiot. But people like you have been so arrogant, if you want to know what's really going on. And so the pro-vaxxer says, you're 100% right. I've been talking down to people like you all my life. And one of the reasons I'm lecturing you is because I'm scared. I'm scared that if people don't get vaccinated, you know, it's going to spread. And But forget that. I'm dropping the conversation. I so apologize to you. The heck with the science. That doesn't justify the way I've talked down to you. And I've been wrong for a long time. And I thank you. I thank you for pointing it out to me. So in this fantasy conversation, the anti-vaxxer calms down. No one like you has ever apologized to me in my life. And the pro-vaxxer says, you deserve it. You called me on this and you deserve it. I'm embarrassed. I'm ashamed. I'm sorry. Anti-vaxxer says, I mean it. <laughs> no one like you has ever apologized to me. And I say, you deserve it. And going forward, I'm going to be more respectful. And then the anti-vaxxer says, you know, I don't think you're trying to hurt me. Tell me a little bit more about this thing, the science and the vaccine, and tell me about it and I'll listen. And then they go on to have a conversation. But can you see that framework where the power of an unsolicited, honest, heartfelt apology, maybe something that's a little bit different than your dad would deliver. <laughs> Look, he's a good guy. He's successful and it works. And we're not here to bash dads. Well, he's growing up. I'm happy to share that with you. As, as he, in his 70s, I think he's finally growing up uh, and arriving at emotional maturity. And he and I have much better conversations about much more important things now. So- I can give you that bit of optimism and hope from my life. So th that's anecdote I think we can learn from. But here's a little story to give your dad, if you want to use it. He said, sure. you know, I had, I had someone on the uh, podcast who's about your age. I'm 75. How old's your dad? 75. 
And he did house calls to dying patients for a long time. And sometimes he'd see some very successful people, very wealthy. His job was to help them find some peace of mind if they didn't have it. And he shared this story where he met someone who was dying. And my guest, you know, could be very direct. He'd develop a rapport with people, but it was a true rapport. And people liked him being direct. And he'd be direct. And he said to this one person who was an icon, you know, hospital named after him, thousands of jobs, multiple marriages, kids on drugs. <laughs> and he said to this fellow, hey, you look like crap, and I don't think it's because you're dying. You've been dying as long as I've known you. What's going on? And he looked at me and he said, I don't know that I've ever done anything important in my life. And I said, what? Look at what you've created. Look at all these things. And this guy was very well known in the public eye, and he had a real wry sense of humor. This person said to my guests, uh, don't con a con man, especially when he's dying. I've got all the love that money can buy, and everything I thought was important isn't. And everything I thought wasn't important is. And I asked him, well, what do you mean? He said, I'll, I'll be honest with you. you know, two months before I got sick, I would have s said this was a bunch of BS, but I'm not emotionally close to another human being. I don't even know what it means to get emotionally close. No one's emotionally close to me. I take, you know, I take the family on trips. I pay for everything, you know, go water ski, go, take the grandkids, thank grandpa and all this sort of stuff. But I'm not close to any of them emotionally. Uh, you know, I love them. They love me, but I'm not even close to myself. And I think it's too late for me to fix it. And I don't like it being too late for me to fix. And I, you know, I was pretty good at intervening. And I'd say, look, this is not a good time to be asking these questions. <laughs> I said, look, you've done a lot of good for the world. Yeah, you know, you, you know, you have your flaws. You've had some of uh, your scandals or near scandals, but you know, nobody's perfect. Let's do pain control, morphine drip, and then get out of Dodge. Doctor's orders unless it makes you feel better to dwell on this stuff. And he looked at me because I was being tested. I said, I mean it. I'm going to write it on a prescription. <laughs> and I think because of his vulnerability and my being authoritative but caring, but I think he felt I was really caring, he took it in. And I like to think that that helped at the end. Mark, thank you. These stories have been so meaningful and directly applicable to my own life. I almost feel selfish consuming all this wisdom from you. And I'm going to continue to be a little bit more selfish because I do want to share with you a little bit about what I'm individually experiencing right now around this Israel-Hamas conflict and the impact not on the other side of the world, but the impact here on the home front and in my own life. As you may not be aware, but I, the rest of the Datages friends and family, if they've been listening along closely uh, to Datages, they know that I'm heavily involved as a volunteer leader at Stanford University. I believe myself and am committed to being a passionate and stalwart a champion of higher education. I'm also born and raised a Jew, and I am a, a Zionist, meaning that I believe in the notion of the nation state of Israel as a home to the Jews. It doesn't mean I always support the politics of Israel and, and its leadership at any given moment in time, just as I don't always agree with the politics and the leadership here in the United States, though I consider myself a patriot. What I'm contending with right now is in these dual roles of being a Jew, being heavily involved in higher education, particularly at my alma mater, Stanford, I see what's happening right now. And I see this, the extreme, going back to the extremism we were talking about and, and the failure to find common ground and the dis destruction of centrism, I feel like a lot of the Jewish community 
is playing directly into the hands of Hamas and these other terrorist organizations and the agenda of Iran and others by completely withdrawing from higher education because of their perception of a failure on the part of higher education to condemn vociferously the actions of Hamas and a more common ground sort of approach that the universities are trying to take in an effort, as I can see from the inside, to preserve the fundamental essence of free speech and discourse and open study in an academic setting. But as a Jew, when I talk to my closest Jewish friends, they're so overcome with these powerful negative emotions, sadness, rage, loss. Many of them lost friends and family in the Hamas terrorist attacks. And they all, to an individual, know someone on the front lines getting ready to go into to battle. And just as a side note, for the benefit of our audience, we're recording this episode on October 27th. Uh, my producer, Youssef, said it was important we state that so that if anything we say has been changed by events that have occurred, that people have it in context. But what I come back to is what I'm confronting. My friends that are using words like evil, terror, anti-Semitism, and calling upon institutions of the United States to show showcase a moral compass. All of this is just, as I said, tearing at the fabric, as I see it, of, of the, these institutions that mean so much in the United States. And I'm wondering what advice or perspective you can offer to me in having these difficult discussions to see about how we can de depolarize things and bring things down a notch and try to address these difficult topics before it really tears us apart. I remember someone saying this to me when I, my children uh, you are now uh, 40, 37, 33. And one of my other mentors said to me, do you know who the most powerful person in a family is? And I said, who? And they said, the youngest child, because the youngest child can stop a vacation in its tracks. The youngest child can be inconsolable and you leave that restaurant. And I think what's happening is there is a fear of blatant irrationality. There is a fear that people who can't be reached are can be easily provoked. And I think it's a, a, a subconscious terror of the terrorist mentality. If we provoke them, if we don't appease them, if we don't give in to them, there's no telling what they'll do. And I don't think it's necessarily consciously thought of, but I think it controls a lot of behavior. You know, whether it's right or not, and I don't want to get too much into politics, but some people say it's possible that Trump could have prevented this because the the rest of the world viewed him as crazy. They viewed him as off balance. There was no telling what he would do. He was so impulsive. He didn't consider consequences. And so he was like, this gives enfant terribles a bad name. <laughs> and so I think part of what's going on is the, the fear of provoking people that are very, very thin-skinned with a short fuse. And I think it's the more unconscious that fear is, the more it can dictate our behavior to appease it. 
And again, you know, one of the things that I recommend is, and I don't know if the head of Stanford or these other universities, if they could reach out to some of the top influencers in opposing groups and maybe say to them, and they, but they can't be powder keg influencers. They, they have to have enough stature in those groups. And you reach out to them and say, uh, we want to do a town hall meeting. And you're highly influential in your group. If one of the groups says, oh, we want war, we love war. It was very calculated to cut off babies' heads because we knew it was so horrific that the response would be so uh, destructive to Gaza that would grab the entire world's attention and they would soon forget the decapitated babies' heads or the raped grandmothers. So I think this was highly calculated. But if I was the leader of a one of these elite colleges, I would have a town hall I try and find a master facilitator or the president, you know, could say, uh, could lead it. And maybe they could learn to facilitate because they're pretty powerful. I often recommend the advice from Oprah Winfrey and Bruce Perry's book called What Happened to You? And it's the basis of trauma-informed therapy. And the belief is that no matter how you act now, people really weren't born to kill. Yeah, we were born to have temper tantrums when we weren't being fed or, you know, whatever. It's rare that people are born to kill. And if what could be facilitated is what happened to you caused you to hold on to your point of view so strongly. And again, you have a deep listener who doesn't cut it into a transactional thing. You want to do surgical empathy. And you might say uh, to the, the Hamas side, what was your first experience of the world, of you perceiving the world as unjust? What did you hear from your parents? What did they say? You know, what did you think? But you keep pulling it out of them. And then what? Was there ever a time where you felt you might look at things differently, but you didn't want to go against your parents, especially if you had a parent who was so passionate about their point of view that if you differed with them, they beat you up or kick you out of the house? And if that was you know, more the Hamas side, pro Hamas. And then with the Israeli side is what happened to you that you're so overprotective? You know, and they might say, hey, I'm in my 20s. And as long as I've lived here, we've had an iron dome. You know, those, are, those aren't people wanting to do right by us. We've coped with being subject to terrifying things. And we've learned to be strong because to the average person in most places, especially America, terror paralyzes you. But we didn't have the luxury of being paralyzed. Yeah, it's been part of their daily lives for decades. It's just a recommendation because kind of like the pro-vax and anti-vax uh, fantasy dialogue, if you can, and also if you agree that neither side was born evil or the Israeli side was born in, a, born in a state of terror, but they could very quickly be influenced. But the key is you got to get them to talk it out. And, and you don't want to prematurely go into solutions. So with my suicidal patients who were pretty destructive towards themselves, I needed to keep them company until they could safely feel whatever they needed to feel and express it. And even then, not do a bait and switch. And I don't see a way through it unless you can frame something so you enable people to talk about how they uh, came to their their unwavering points of view. I mean, I think in American politics, I, I don't know who the person would be, but if you could bring some of the top influencers, it's not going to happen with Biden and Trump, 
But the ideal would be it would happen with them and people would say, you seem very adamant about your points of view. Share with us the story of how that came to be. What were some of the influences that caused you to be so adamant? We think there's a reason behind you holding your views so passionately and defending them so deeply. So tell us the story. Do you follow me? Because I think you, you have to go to the head of the snake instead of on either side, instead of the tail that's just whipping the head all around. Yeah, it would be amazing to see, to use some of your terminology, if any of these leaders of these extremist viewpoints on either side of any issue have ever felt felt. If anyone has ever taken the time to listen to them, if they've always put them up so much on that pedestal as the leader of this movement that they've attached themselves to, that they've never been able to actually engage with them person to person to create the kind of experience that you create in your therapeutic environment. And it may be that it's impossible. Um, you can apply this to, uh, well, you can apply this to Trump, I think. To me, he's an example of this. I'm not trying to bash him. I'm trying to offer some understanding. I heard a saying from a, a professional athlete, you know, who had been one of the top in their field. And it was a, it was a great quote. And he said to me, when you go from somebody to anybody, it's the same as being nobody. And if we look at the history of uh, Trump's career, before The Apprentice, you know, he was he was kind of not taken, even with that, he was not taken seriously. And he wanted to respect respectable people, but you have to earn respect. And I could see if that that formula applies to him, and I think it's a universal one, That that's the what do they say? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's intoxicating. And I'll share something that I'm a little bit embarrassed about. I have, you know, flirted with depression a lot of my life. I think that's enabled me to be somewhat empathic to people that are feeling that. What I realize is that my depression has coincided with spinning my wheels, feeling like I was on some fool's errand, that I was foolish, questioning, what am I doing? What am I thinking? And and here's a confession, and I'm a little bit embarrassed about it. And maybe it's helping me face mortality. I've gotten more interest in me facing mortality than I've ever had in my life from the outside world. I hope it's not that superficial. Well, you know, maybe I'm feeling peaceful because I'm finally getting attention. I, I hope it's not that, but I'll cop to it being partially that. But I think if I'm being decent with myself, it's 30% maybe. You know, the other 70% is I'm just at peace. Uh, I wonder, can I share sort of an insight I recently had that's on, I'm dying to tell you? The title of this, and you can go there and find it. And the title of this, so I give titles. And it was Dust to Dust, Ashes to Ashes, Whole, W-H-O-L-E to Whole. And I had this crazy idea that all of us felt whole in our mother's womb. We didn't cry in the womb because our wish was her command. We had a natural remote control. Oh, I'm hungry? Oh, look what's coming down the pike. Oh, I'm cold? Oh, that's kind of cozy. And I think one of the reasons we cry so loudly is we go from omnipotent to completely powerless to communicate to the world, to tune into us completely. And what a lot of successful people do is they pivot to achievement and they get a pat on the head. That's my little boy. That's my little girl. Oh, this feels great for 50 years <laughs> until 
a purely transactional life starts to feel empty. Balance that against divorces, your teenagers acting out, people who get to really know you, not respecting you or trusting you, but you can still be successful. What I talked about is in one of my other videos is the power of true vulnerability, because I've always had trouble letting anyone care about me. I'm the caretaker. I'm the doctor. I'm the therapist. I care about you. No, 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 no. don't care about me. And whenever I talk to people, or, yeah, or yeah, I'm here for you, or I'd see clients, or people would reach out, how are you doing? I'd say, I I'm fine. And I'd say, uh, tell me about you. I mean, even at the beginning of this, I said, uh, Chad, how do we make this successful for your community? How do we make this a good use of your time? I know you don't want to waste their time. And so I'll just share this because uh, it's been profound is probably about four or five months ago. And my prognosis is kind of shifting. You know, uh, I'm not, it doesn't seem like I'm going to die imminently, but it fluctuates. And so one of these people said, how are you doing, Mark? And instead of saying, I'm fine, what's up with you? I said, well, I've got some issues. And he said, really? He said, like what? And he's multitasking and whatever. And then I don't know what became of me. And I looked at him on the Zoom call and I said, I might be dying. And then I got emotional. And then I got embarrassed. I got deeply embarrassed. And I apologized profusely. And I said, I'm so sorry. Oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Uh, let me take it back. I'm sorry. Uh, let's focus on you. And it's been weird, Chad, because to a one, they've said, do not apologize. And here's some of the insight people have been giving me. And this goes back to hole to hole because there I am totally vulnerable. I'm raw. You know, I'm not going to do a bait and switch. I'm not selling anything. I'm letting the carrying in. And here's some of the feedback I've gotten. And I think it's worth thinking about. One person said, this is a gift, Mark. The way you are is a gift. I said, I don't get it. And they said, this is the most emotionally intimate conversation I've ever had in my life. And you might think, oh, no, no. It's true. A lot of people, I never had a conversation like this with my dad. And then another person said to me, and these were all men, because, you know, women, you know, even though there can be a little bit on the alpha side, they know how to connect to their kids and they connect to their ill parents. And I mean, you know, they, they have still have the connect gene. And then another man said, I'm envious of you. He said, no, I'm not envious of your illness. You can have it. <laughs> he said, the way you're being, the way you're so, you feel so safe with me to be the way you are the way you are trusting me so completely to be the way you are. I don't see you as emotional. I see you as free. And I've never felt any of that. And then what's happening, and if I was a betting person, you're going to say, count me in. You could say, forget about it. I have my own 700 club. It's called the 24-7 club. And people are saying 24-7. Well, what does that mean? You can call me 24-7, Mark. I'm not going to call any of them. And some of these people are very successful and very transactional. And if I came up with some cockamamie business idea, they would ghost me. They'd smile politely. Yeah, that, that, that's interesting. You know, we're doing a lot of things. But they're offering up. I didn't ask them. They said 24-7. And I've been trying to figure out why 24-7. And my latest thought about it, it's not because I could be dying. It's not because, you know, I'm just being vulnerable. And by the way, if you want to be vulnerable, you don't want to be helpless. So apparently, I don't come off as helpless. It's just like, whoop, here it comes. No, you have you way know, too so much it, wisdom it, it, to be it, helpless. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not helpless. Like, oh, what am I going to do? It's just, yeah. here it comes. Yeah. Sorry. So I've stopped apologizing already. But I think the 24-7 is because for many of these people, it's maybe the most real conversation they've had in a long time. And they want and, more of the real, they want more of the real conversation because, and these are good people. And I'm not saying to be successful in business, you know, means you're a bad person. But this is just 
so real. And I think the 24 seven is not something they necessarily want to give me. It's something they want to receive from me. Yeah. Yeah. They want what you've got to give anytime you're available to give it. Yeah. And so the whole to whole is, well, that's pretty interesting. I'm vulnerable. You know, I'm, you know, there I am vulnerable and what will be will be. And they're saying 24 seven, that's like a mom's womb. <laughs> yeah. I'm whole yeah. again and I'm home again. I'm going to add my own two cents. I think it may go even further than that. This idea of you being available to people 24 seven during this period, I see it as the completion of a giant cycle that has been your life and kind of a moment of destiny. Uh, I know that's using big language and a bit of hyperbole, but I think it's appropriate hyperbole. You have spent so much of your life focused on listening, listening intently, and you've listened to some of the most wise, some of the most damaged, some of the most interesting, some of the most common people in the world. And you've brought in and internalized so much wisdom and applied to it your own framework, your intellect, your empathy, to process all of that in a way that no other human being has ever taken so much in and done so much work with what they've pulled in that I hope you relish and enjoy the attention that you're getting during this time because you deserve it. But I hope you also recognize that by taking a moment to stop listening quite so much and open up and start sharing, that that is completing your destiny and your reason for being a part of this world. Can I give you an observation and a tip? Yeah. For our listeners and you, please. I think five years ago, I spoke in Moscow because five of my books are bestsellers in Russia. I mean, too bad they're not applying, just listen. I was a featured speaker along with Daniel Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize for Thinking Fast and Slow. And something I've been trying to teach the world since then, and I'm going to demonstrate it with you and tell me if I, I got it right. If we can realize that whoever we're with one-on-one, one-on-five, one-on-five-thousand, that underneath there, you're listening to me, you're listening for something, and it's frequently unconscious. And tell me if this might be what you're listening for, and if it's accurate, tell me what it feels like if it's accurate. So if I'm channeling my inner Chad, what I'd be listening for is... I want to honor the trust and confidence of my community, the Dadages community. I want to honor the trust and confidence by giving them value, by giving them something that can uplift them, inspire, motivate them, teach them practical tips and tools. I'm also listening for people that I might need to protect the community from who, even though they're best-selling authors, they're real stiffs. <laughs> I mean, it's like, well, he's in the Wall Street Journal bestseller list, but I got to go back and say, we couldn't use the interview. Sorry, my interview skills were not good enough to bring out the human being in you, whatever. And that you, what you're listening for is you don't want to waste people's time in your community. You don't want to insult them. You want to serve them. And you're always on the lookout for something that you think will comfort them, nurture them, teach them. So is any of that true what I just said? Yeah, it absolutely is. It's not just comforting and providing that perspective to them. It's, I believe that I see Datages as an opportunity to be a platform that allows individual members of our friends and family. And that's why I call them friends and family and not just listeners, people that are engaged with us 
to take out of that experience, take out of that time that they spend with us, take out of that community what serves them best and that they can walk away and apply that to their life in the most meaningful way. You know, you asked how that feels. And I can tell you that to me, it feels purposeful. It feels like it creates a reason to do what I do and to spend the time that I spend. And I get so much out of a conversation and a dialogue like this, but I get just as much fulfillment out of the knowledge and the hope that the rest of the people that tune in and take the time out of their day realize that they've made an amazing investment in themselves by taking that time and that they take something away from it that is meaningful for them as well. I understand that. Was there a, an experience when I said, I'm going to channel you and let me see if I can get what you're listening for? And it seems like I got it right, which means I get you. I get what you're where you're coming from. I get your purpose. Did you have an emotional experience of someone getting getting you in ways that you you didn't express as directly as I did? Was there a uh, uh, because I'm trying to share this with the world? Of course, there was an emotional and, experience, uh, and and I think the best term I could apply to it is uh, I'm going to use three words, and there's some combination of these three: calm, peace, and serenity. It was just, you, you, you described the experience of being in a mother's womb and being, you know, feeling warm and feeling enveloped and, and feeling what you need to survive. That feeling is a very soulful level of feeling provided for by having that, that connection, that common ground, that understanding. No, I'm glad because I'll give a tip that you can use in communities. I was recently on a, a panel a few days ago about uh, mental health and how to do it in tough times. And if you're listening in, and you might try this with the Dadages community, and you might even do a, you know, let, let's have a big Zoom call. You can feed dopamine and pleasure through excitement and adrenaline. And then you have to keep buying product to keep the adrenaline going. Or you can feed dopamine through oxytocin and emotional closeness. So something I, I've used with organizations and I'm suggesting to communities, and I did this during the pandemic, if you can get them together and you can do this on a Zoom call or if you do it in person, what you say in the Zoom call is I'd like you to think of the worst moment you've had since the uh, Hamas-Israeli conflict has turned into a war. Try to remember the worst time. And I want you in the chat area to write down the feeling that matches it. It's called affective labeling. And write, Angry, numb, overwhelmed, scared, paralyzed, hurt. And, and you can add whatever word. When I've done this with organizations, what happens is they're a little hesitant. And if you're doing it on a Zoom, I did it for one company that's in, where is it? It's in Shanghai, Miami, and London. A few words came in. And then the chat area flooded. And people were writing down these different feelings. And on the Zoom call, people started crying with relief. It was bathing everyone in oxytocin. Oh, I'm not alone. I'm feeling it. I'm expressing it. I'm not alone. And we asked the organization, how many of you felt better because of that? 80% felt better. Nobody felt worse. 20% felt no change. And you can do this in person by, by saying, uh, here, we're going to pass out post-it notes or index card. Think of the worst time. Write the word on the post-it note. And you put them all in the center. And then you have people one by one going into the center and picking at random one of the cards. 
And what happens is people feel emotionally connected. I did it with one company and uh, someone said uh, to the CEO, that was the best single exercise we've ever done for our culture. In fact, it's the best exercise I've ever been through. Uh, and then someone, you know, went to the CEO and started uh, crying and said, it's the first time I felt like I belonged anywhere. That's really powerful. And, and uh... so can you picture that? It's uh, because oxytocin counterbalances cortisol. So if you lower yeah. cortisol, you lower stress, mm -hmm. you take the amygdala hijack out of it, you put it back in the holster. Of course. Blood flow goes back up into your prefrontal cortex and you can start to think of options. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Get back to doing the business. I want to, as we wrap up here today, I want to come from this corporate world and some of the global things we've been talking about and all of this. I want to bring it back down to the level of family. And I have to imagine that your current focus uh, through I'm Dying to Tell You and memorializing these bits of wisdom and important insights that you have to share with the world also must to you at some level represent a gift or a family legacy that you're leaving for your children and for your grandchildren and for generations to come as well. Am I, am I right about that? Yeah, I hope so. Look, I lucked out with my wife and my mm -hmm. three grown children who live locally, my four grandchildren, but it's not as nobody in my family listens to me. <laughs> That's called being a dad. <laughs> I know. And it's like, it's like zero. And I'll, I'll share an intimate thing because uh, part of what we're also talking about to our listeners, look up the term abreaction. Abreaction. And abreaction is when you reach into repressed unconscious feelings okay. that you push away to function through a crisis, but they're in there. And when the danger and the adrenaline insulation that allows you to survive being a first responder or in the military, when the danger goes away, the adrenaline insulation against danger goes away, and what you've repressed wants to break through. And the key is, and people are afraid to let it break through because people are worrying, I don't know why it didn't take me down the first time. If I allow it to break through, it's going to eviscerate me. And I had a very intimate interaction with my, with my son, and I said, uh, I've been thinking of dying sooner than later because the thought of what I'm going to put this family through... I can't stand it. I just can't stand it. I mean, it's that's really part of my core DNA. And not being a burden is like phew, right there. And he's usually kind of not that emotive. And he looked at me and he said, I, I don't want you to die. And I guess I intellectually knew my family cared about me. Yeah. But I've never felt that expression like that. And I started to cry with, whoa, maybe I better live a little bit longer. <laughs> yeah. And I share that with you and your listeners, and uh, that conversation will be one of the top three conversations he'll ever have in his life. And he can't remember number one or number two. Well, I hope he has many more, because part of what I'm trying to push out into the world is when you can be truly openly vulnerable, but not too much on the woe is me side. Like I said, I mean, I'm I don't know if you want to be part of the 24-7 club, Chad. If you want, uh, I'm happy to let you join, but uh, I'm doing pretty well. <laughs> you guys have membership cards and secret handshakes? Because if so, I'm in 100%. And you're welcome. I don't believe you when you say that no one in your family listens to you. But if you feel that there's anything that maybe they haven't heard from you, that you've been trying to get to them as a message, as a 
a lesson, something, a piece of advice that you really want them to stand out, stand out for them and for them to hear above everything else that you might have shared with them? Is there one sort of go-to champion level piece of advice and perspective that you think is important for your family and maybe other families to hear? Well, I told you about my journey of dust to dust, ashes to ashes, hole to hole. And I would like to say to all of them, you're already whole. Sure, pursue, aspire to things, have purpose. It's interesting. I think one of the other things that goes along with this peace of mind is yeah. I have nothing left to prove and nothing le nothing that I'm chasing and everything to share from 50 years of listening. Yeah. And some people will say, well, you really need a positive attitude, Mark. And I say, I'm not in denial. I said, I've been chasing peace of mind for 70 years. I said, I'll trade you pe complete peace of mind and wholeness for positive attitude any day of the week. I mean, I'm good to go. That's great. And Mark, we've talked here today and you talk a lot and just listen about how important it is to people around us to feel felt, not just understood. And, you know, my sincere hope today is though I'm a novice compared to you and being able to provide an environment for that, I hope that I and the rest of the Dadages friends and family that are listening here have helped you to feel not only understood, but felt and very much valued in, in this experience. Yeah, absolutely. I want to leave all of you with one exercise because I just have too many. And, and yeah. I think it's in Just Listen. It's the HUVA exercise, H-U-V-A. Okay. And you have to do it intentionally because what you'll realize is you'll think to yourself, I stink at this. And so every day, select a conversation where you want the other person to feel really great about it. And the HUVA exercise is, and by the way, you scored 10, 10, 10, 10. <laughs> so your intention in the conversation have the conversation. And on a scale of one to 10, how much did they feel heard out versus interrupted, competed with, not allowed to speak? You've done an amazing job of hearing me out. How much did they feel understood by you? And one of the ways they'll feel understood by you is you ask them to say more about something. Now, that's really interesting, Chad. Say a little bit more about what yeah. you're trying to do with the community. Yeah. V is how much do they feel valued? You know, it's really remarkable, your commitment to dadages. Your dad might say, I don't get it. It's not a moneymaker. <laughs> okay, dad, you're off the hook, you know, till I do a house call on you. No, as I but, said, uh, he's growing up uh, and, and he gets it and he, he values it and appreciates yeah. it. And then the final thing is, how much did they feel that you added value to what they said? Mm. And so what you do is, you know, pick one conversation. And again, it doesn't come naturally, but I would give you very high grades. I felt heard out. I felt understood. I felt valued. And I felt that you added value. Well, thank you for that report card, doctor. Uh, it's, it means a lot to me to receive that kind of high praise from someone like you, who is uh, such a master at listening and such a master at uh, managing important and challenging discussions. And now you have one additional opportunity to be heard here on Datages. I know we've covered some really heavy topics throughout our discussion, but I want to end on a high note, a positive note. 
and and rely upon some humor. And I'll, I'll call upon the words of an author and, and gelatologist, which is another uh, word I had to look up, Alan Klein, who wrote The Healing Power of Humor. As I said, I didn't know this previously, but gelatology is the study of laughter and its effects on the body from a psychological and physiological perspective. And Klein said, Humor can be one of our best survival tools. So what I want to do is boost your survival power today by giving you the chance to share a dad joke with us and carry on our legacy here at Dadages of the bad dad joke. I don't know if this is a dad joke. This is kind of a joke. I think because of the war, it's not great to be glib. And my publisher, I have a great relationship with HarperCollins Leadership. And, and they're saying, you know, what do you want to write on? And I say, look, they said, you could do Just Listen 2.0. I mean, it's sold 250,000 copies. Uh, I said, I don't want to do an instructional book. I just want to share what I've learned from 50 years of listening. And I wrote to him and I said, do you think this would be too glib a title? Going out of business sale. A death and dying specialist shares lessons from his lifetime that you don't have to be dying to learn. Yeah, he'll come back, say, too glib. I'll say, yeah, but, you know, in those airport bookstores, you know, that title is going to jump out at people. Number one but, bestseller. You know. I, I see it already. Well, that, that's wonderful. Well, Mark, thank you so much for sharing your humor and for sharing your wisdom with us. This has been fantastic. And like I said, I, I'm, I feel so completed in this exercise and in this time we've spent together because we're, we're both taking something away from it. And hopefully the rest of the friends and family are as well. On that note, I'll finish by reminding everyone, dad may not always know what he's talking about, but he sure can sound like he does. 